as Johnny said, we will be dipping in and out of Isaiah and through the year for the next four weeks, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter one to 12. Um, and this evening, uh, looking at chapter one. So let me pray. Father, and please would you help us this evening to listen to what you have to say to us. Thank you so much that all of your word is breathed out by you. And Lord, it means that as we listen tonight, we can hear what you have to say to us. Please would you help us to listen. Amen. Well, have you ever been exposed for what you are really like? You know, when you're caught and there's no excuse, you can't say, oh, well, I didn't realise or oh, it was a mistake or it was a one off, but you're actually exposed. It's what you're like and there's no excuse. A few years ago, I coached a year eight football team in, uh, in a school. They were a pretty good bunch of boys. They were quite good at football and um, competing in the school's cup. And it was quite fun going on the journey through the cup with them. But there was a bit of growing tension as it was quite a disjointed team as there was a couple of boys that were quite good at football, played for academy teams outside of school. And there was always this bit of misunderstanding about whether or not they were allowed to play for the school by their club or they were allowed to train um, by their club. What made it slightly more difficult was they were also in a bit of trouble with the school. So it was always a bit difficult to understand whether they're allowed to train or they just didn't really fancy it. Now, they were, there was one boy in particular that was pretty good, but he thought he was a bit big time. And so he didn't always fancy training. My rule for the squad was if you don't train, then you don't play. And I'll, remember, I'll never forget, I remember clearly this moment as I walked towards the training pitch one afternoon and there looked like there was some kind of scuffle going on in the corner of the pitch. There was this boy in question looking at some other boys. He had his back to me as I was approaching the corner of the pitch and I was striding towards to see what was going on at the beginning of the training session. And as I got closer, it was quiet. And then this boy um, started speaking. He said, well, it doesn't matter if I train or not. I'm good enough that Sir will pick me anyway. And the crowd went quiet. They looked at him, looked at me. He turned, looked over his shoulder and looked me straight in the face. And his face dropped. He was totally exposed. He couldn't make any excuses anymore. He'd revealed his hand it was shown what he was really like. I felt a bit sorry for him afterwards because it was quite intense being exposed like that, but we had a good conversation afterwards. But, but you see, more often than not, there's always some kind of excuse you can hide behind to cover up when you're in the wrong. Maybe you say, oh, I didn't realise, or I didn't really think about it. But in a moment like that, when you're totally exposed, for a calculated disobedience, calculated dishonesty, calculated selfishness. It's a horrible feeling. Look, here's the beginning of Isaiah's book that we've just read. And chapter one is pretty heavy. God's people are being exposed. Read with me from verse two. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up. 
but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. It's a pretty bleak picture. God's people, his own children that he's looked after, don't even acknowledge him. Even an ox acknowledges its owner, a donkey knows its master. Stupid animals, and yet they're less stupid than God's people here being exposed. Their relationship with God has broken down. Look at verse four. Ah, sinful nation. It's not just that God's people have done something wrong. It's who they are. There's no excuse. They are being totally exposed as sinners. And you might be sat there thinking, wow, that is an abrupt way to start a series, Simon. We've not even got our bearings yet. Well, that is an abrupt way to start a book. And that's what Isaiah does. But let's look at verse one for a minute to get our bearings. The headline of the book, verse one, it gives us some context as to why the book starts like this and what's going on. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of, of Judah. Look, Isaiah is God's spokesperson. He's a prophet. He speaks on behalf of God. And you see what he speaks? A vision concerning, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. See, Isaiah has had a vision from the Lord. And that shapes the literary genre of the book. Isaiah records clear pictures God's given him. And that really does shape the, the feel of the book as we read it. It's not filled with clear-cut imperatives for us to apply today that maybe other parts of the Bible are. And there is some tricky imagery. So it can be hard work at times. But you see, what we get is this rich picture of what God is like that we'll really feel as we zoom into sections of the book. Look at verse one, we, we see something of the historical context of when it's written. There's four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, four kings in a line of kings in for um, Judah. And that puts Isaiah's ministry somewhere between 740 and 700 BC. So in the big picture of the Old Testament, that's roughly 150 years after the kingdom is divided under Solomon. Have a look at the picture coming up on screen. That's the first white, white dot. And roughly 150 years before the book of Daniel and Babylonian captivity that we've looked at that you might be familiar with. And that this book is roughly 700 years before the arrival of Jesus. That's where we are in the big picture of the Old Testament. And so we know from what's written throughout the book that Isaiah writes to a specific people in a specific place, God's little nation, against the backdrop of a growing superpower you see in that map, the Assyrian. And there's warning of two specific events Firstly, 
this, the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem in 701 BC. And secondly, the Babylonian captivity in 587 BC. But you see, these two specific events that are addressed paint the picture of God, how God feels about his people, which we can so closely identify with. But the event that's weaved throughout the whole of the book of Isaiah, the, the thing that's prophesied about so clearly is the coming, the rule, the reign, and the return of the Lord Jesus. One of the most helpful things I've found in studying Isaiah is that in many senses, it's not a, a linear book. People have described the shape of the book in lots of ways. Some people have described it like a symphony with chapter one here as we read it as the overture. The chapter that we tune in to train our ear to listen to the rest of the symphony of the book. Or maybe if you've got no idea about classical music like me, um, but you might have played on Garage Band or something similar. You've been on one of those digital mixers with an eight by eight grid that scrolls through and you click on a spot and it may be a bass drum on, on the first beat of the bar and it goes boom and then you see the line go across. And you see, as you fill out the music and you get the texture of the music, you build a, a bigger picture of the song. But you see, because you've introduced them slowly, all the different elements, when you get to the end and you get to what could be a bit of a wall of noise, you can really pick out the bass drum on the first beat of the bar. You can pick out what bits go where. And so this evening, what we're going to do is try and hone in on chapter one and, and hear that overture. And here's what we see. Hope from despair. And particularly in the first 12 chapters, there's a lot of despair. Maybe you picked it up in chapter one. But even in chapter one, we still get this glimmer of hope. And it might sound grim at some points this evening, but it's so important that we grasp the weight of despair in Isaiah's first chapter, that we feel the hope that comes throughout the rest of the book. Jesus spoke of how all the law and the prophets speak about him. And it's clear in the book of Isaiah that, that Jesus is the central figure because it shows just how desperately we need him. And it shows how clearly Jesus will be the solution. Now, as we listen this evening, we listen knowing that this whispered hope is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. But we need to be quite careful to listen to the warning of our human nature as God exposes sinful nature. We need to be careful to do that, that we might trust all the more deeply in God's solution, the Lord Jesus. Here's what David Jackman wrote in his commentary. We are made to face the duplicity and ungracious evil of the human heart and to recognise the desperate nature of our human condition before God's holiness. The exposure of sin in the religious, social and political areas of Judah's national life is relentless, but we need these chapters to hold a biblical mirror to our hearts and to see ourselves reflected in the cynical self-justification and willful disobedience. So look, here's where Isaiah begins. Verse four, ah, 
sinful nation. It's Isaiah's audible exhale of frustration, disappointment, despair at what God's people are like. Look, he fleshes it out in two pictures. They're in five and six and seven and eight. The first picture is like a great big wound, open, continuing to inflict itself. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. I'm partial to watching a bit of 24 hours in A&E. You might have seen it on the telly, partly because it always seems to be on the telly. The premise of the programme is pretty self-explanatory. It tracks 24-hour periods of an A&E. And there's this one episode that sticks in my mind from a couple of weeks ago. There was a stab victim wheeled in from central London. And they have this moment, the kind of briefing, where they bring everyone in to to list what's going on and, and to start thinking about what they'll do. And literally, as they wheel him in, he's bleeding out from stab wounds all over his body. They're, they're barely able to, to do this briefing because they're trying to do so much work on him at the same time. But, but the thing that really stuck with me is that this man, as they lifted up his arm and found another wound open, gaping, as he's bleeding out to his death, he's angry. He wouldn't let the doctors treat him. They had security to hold him down to try and treat him. And I just remember the picture because he's literally bleeding out to his death. And I asked the question, why why don't you realise that what you're doing isn't going to help? Why would you do that? Here's what Isaiah writes in verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The second picture is like an undefended, desolate city that's been infiltrated. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. See, Isaiah's using this rhetorical device, parallelism. It's a repeated picture. The second intensifies the first they work together to give us this picture of what god's people are like it's a completely hopeless picture it's a picture of despair god's people israel are a mess their relationship with the lord is broken down they are utterly estranged and they do nothing to make the situation any better god's people are exposed There are people without excuse who do not acknowledge God. To the heart of the human issue is there's been a relationship breakdown. We have not been able to live in relationship with God. We've got no excuse. Here's what Romans 1, verse 20 and 21 say. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, God exposes the human condition here and in every one of us. We cannot help ourselves. God's people are exposed for what they're really like. And it's shown in what they do. We see that 
God's people are hypocrites. Look at verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? See what God's asking? What does it mean if you come and worship? Look at verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Why does God hate what his people are doing? Because their hands are full of blood, not just impure motive in what they're doing. It's not just bad theology, but because they're steeped in sin. Their worship is futile. You cannot fool God. You cannot pray your way out of being angry at your family. You cannot serve your way out of spending money on things you shouldn't. You cannot read your way out of not loving people at church. You cannot give your way out of keeping on doing things that don't honour God. God wants a relationship with you. And the solution to an estranged relationship is not by trying to give God stuff. When your sin is exposed, what do you do? Try and cover up? Make it look okay? Make it up to God? God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? See, when we see sin as more than just disobedience, but a relationship breakdown, it becomes clearer that the the solution can't just be doing stuff for God. Secondly, God's people are corrupt. Look at verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Look, shame is not a massive thing in our culture. In others, it really is. But God's people here, they've become totally corrupt. They say they're God's people and yet act completely differently. They bring shame on their God. Have you ever found yourself thinking, what if someone at church saw me doing this? What if someone at church knew I was going there when you're tucked away in a room in your house with no one else there or you're out with friends that no one else knows? What if someone at church saw me doing that? I'd be so ashamed. Well, forget that question for a moment and ask this. Is there something I'm doing that is going behind God's back like an unfaithful wife. You might think, I really don't like being exposed. Surely as we start our 
our time in Isaiah. Surely if we trust in Jesus, I don't need to admit that that's what I'm prone to. Surely it doesn't need to be this close to home. Surely if I trust in Jesus, I can just try a little harder. But as we look to apply God's diagnosis of Israel in this period to us today in Bissa, maybe we're tempted to say, look, it's all okay now. That's not true of us anymore. Now that we've got Jesus, we're just fine. But we need a right sense of sin. We shouldn't fear it or resent it. It's not destructive. It's life-giving. If we've got the courage to let Jesus save us. Because we're often told that what we need is more self-esteem, more self-discipline. Well, that's not it. What we need is more humility to recognise our own sin and have a greater reliance on Jesus. Here's what Ray Ortland writes in his commentary on Isaiah chapter one. In Isaiah chapter one, God is telling us the truth about ourselves. Let's not be fooled by our polished appearances and our stylish theories of the darling self. They'll be the death of us. The unflattering portrait of Isaiah 1 is God's way of disturbing us until we ask the courageous questions with which God can breathe life back into us. And look, this evening, maybe it feels pretty bleak and heavy at this moment. Well, that must cause us to see in this passage the hope for exposed sinners. And look, come with me, there is, there's a glimpse of real hope for exposed sinners. First, look, though, it's judgment. Look at verse 24. Therefore, the Lord declares the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Look, God will not just stand by and watch on with evil prevailing. No. It's a terrifying picture. Look at verse 25. There'll be an ultimate deep clean. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. God will be at work to remove all evil. And it is a petrifying picture for exposed sinners. But look, here's the hope. Verse 26. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counsellors at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. See, the words I will turn and I will restore, the two verbs in verse 25 and 26, they translate the same verb. We get a different verb in our English translation because of the idiom that's in the sentence. But what it's saying is that God, by the very same motion, somehow, Somehow God will both judge and restore. Maybe we see it more clearly in verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Do you see what he's saying? For this faithless city, faithless, exposed, sinful people, somehow... God will execute, execute justice and redeem a rebellious people. God is announcing that in his great redemptive plan, he will perfectly execute judgment. 
and rescue an undeserving people. See, from the very beginning of Isaiah, from chapter one, this evening as we look at it, his clear vision doesn't just announce God's coming judgment, but the message is clear. God saves sinners. Look at verse 18. Here's the personal, pictorial invitation of that reality. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Look, this is God's personal invitation to an undeserving people. Remember the picture of sin? It's not just disobedience against a holy God, but it's a relationship breakdown with people that have become estranged. Well, look, here's God's personal invitation to restore the relationship. He doesn't just want your stuff. He wants you. As I paint the, the hopeless picture, God's people are exposed, covered in blood, not right before him, estranged, rebellious, sinful, incapable of finding the solution, stupid. And now he gives a simple hope. It's a swap. Though you are guilty, you will be made righteous. And you see, God's righteous requirement isn't met with any human effort. It's met by a swap. Look, what does God ask? Verse 19, all you have to do is be willing and obedient. All you have to do is show up, recognise your own sin, trust in Jesus. Look, this evening as we look at these verses, the solution is so clearly the Lord Jesus. Because God does not redeem his people by simply sweeping his standards aside. God pays the price demanded by his own justice and righteousness. Isaiah 1 shows us the great magnitude of Jesus' achievement on the cross. Redemption comes not by God's leniency, but his justice and righteousness is fully satisfied in the Lord Jesus. This evening as we look at this picture, the grim diagnosis, maybe as you're listening and you feel exposed, You've lived like God's not there. Your relationship with him has become fractured, estranged. Maybe you feel like a hypocrite. Each time you come to church or try to pray or read the Bible, you can't help but feel like life isn't matching up. Maybe you've been desperately trying to put on this fake religiosity and approach God in your own strength and make it look like it's okay. Maybe you say one thing in one context and another some completely different maybe the moment you're on your own you're sucked into other situations you're sucked into sin maybe right now this evening as you look at this diagnosis you're feeling deeply ashamed well Isaiah says 
the answer is that though your sins are like scarlet, you will be as white as snow. We can approach God now because of the Lord Jesus. In the Lord Jesus, God's justice is pronounced and his people are redeemed. So although we deserve that judgment, we will be delivered. There's nothing we can do to clear our own name. But a swap has taken place if only we'll accept it. God's made a way to mend our relationship breakdown. Maybe you're listening in this evening and you wouldn't say you trust in Jesus. God's instruction to you, his invitation to you, verse 18. Come, let us settle the matter. It's a deeply personal invitation. Accept the work of Jesus. And maybe you've trusted in Jesus for many years. Isaiah 1 calls us to rightly recognise and expose our sin. And so rest all the more deeply in the work accomplished by Jesus on the cross. In that swap. Because there is nothing we could do in and of ourselves. So this evening as we finish... We're going to sing in a moment, Jesus paid it all. But will you just spend 30 seconds on your own to confess your own sin, recognise how desperately you need the Lord Jesus and thank God because Jesus has paid it all. I'll give you 30 seconds and then we'll sing. <laughs>